podcast one production. After five years of investigation, Michael West has discovered the energy truth. Welcome back to The Energy Truth. In this episode, investigative journalist Michael West will explore the future of energy in Australia and what governments must do to fix the crisis in electricity and gas prices and the failure of the national energy market. The national energy guarantee, what we're doing on the cost of poles and wires, what we're doing, making sure people get onto the right plan, plans, what we've done to bring down the wholesale price of gas. Everything is focused on supporting business, supporting families, supporting jobs. In October, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull unveiled his solution, the National Energy Guarantee, or the NEG. The government has scrapped the clean energy target, the energy policy blueprint by Chief Scientist Alan Finkel, and quickly devised its successor, the NEG. The aims of this latest energy policy are to ensure supply and force prices down while adhering to Australia's commitment under the Paris Climate Accord to keeping the rise in global temperatures this century to below 2 degrees Celsius. Michael sat down with energy analyst Bruce Robertson for his view. So what do you think of Malcolm Turnbull's NEG? Is this the solution that we need? If we're talking about price, we have to put it in context. And the context is that this is going to save you between $110 and $115 a year. Now, this year, the average electricity consumer is going to lose between $250 and $300 a year. So it really isn't going to do much in terms of solving the price. They're going to go up 20% and um, 15 to 20% across the nation. You're going to get between, you know, 5 5 to 10% back. Basically what it means is that you're saving about five months' worth of increases. So, and the reason why that is is, is very clear. And, and the reason is because green schemes are not the cause of the rise in your bills. Green schemes are about the fourth largest contributor to rises in your bills. There are three things that are bigger contributors. All these solutions to electricity price crisis are going nowhere because we're not attacking the biggest problem in the industry. The biggest problem is the network costs, and that's 40% of the increases, and it's about half your electricity bill is network costs. Governments have dithered over substantial reform. Over the years, a stack of studies and reports have been commissioned and later shelved. Their recommendations mostly ignored. Roman Demansky is the founder of the Energy Users Association. He's one of the best qualified energy experts in the country. We've had any number of reports. We, we had the... Um what was called the PARA review, which was chaired by the um, former Energy Minister, Warwick PARA. That was reported in about 2002. And in 2006, we had the ERIG review, the Energy Reform Implementation Group, that was chaired by Bill Scales. That reported, um, as I said, 2006. Um, we've more recently had the, the Finkel review by the Chief Scientist, which reported this year. And in, they're just the three main ones. The critical recommendations that have come out of those reviews haven't been followed up on. And essentially, particularly with the first two of those reports, the PAR review and the ERIG report, 
virtually none of the recommendations were, were accepted. So the reports are just, you know, sitting on someone's desk um, gathering dust, you know. Bruce Robertson told Michael that reform must address the rapid technological change that is taking place. Power is now being produced and consumed where we actually make it. And the best example of that is solar panels and batteries that, that are on residential buildings. So... We've seen a change in the way we produce and consume electricity at the same time as you've had this massive overinvestment in what is quite frankly useless infrastructure. And um, a lot of that useless investment that's gone on was knowingly done by the network companies. They knew that they didn't need that investment and um, it has to be written off. Many of us are leaving the grid for alternative energy to save on bills. The only way to fix this is to require energy companies to write down the value of their networks. As the networks get their financial returns by inflating the value of their assets, lower values would mean lower power prices. So the network companies have to take write-offs in order to properly value this infrastructure. Very big write-offs. And this is the issue that they've recently been privatised and now they need to take very big Write-offs. So what will um, that do if they take write-offs? Why would they take write-offs and what will that do? Well, it would have the direct effect of bringing down electricity prices. That's really? because the regulated asset base would be valued lower so they wouldn't be claiming as much from the regulators. Is that correct? Yeah, from your electricity bill. Basically, half your bill is network costs and that half would be halved. So you would save roughly 25% of your bill would go if they took the write-offs that they really do need to take. They, they need to take very large write-offs and, uh, you know, that, that would salvage the electricity price crisis that we have. You know, so what, what needs to be unwound then? What needs to happen is an audit of the national electricity market. We need to go through all these poles and wires assets and work out what is needed and what is not going forward. Um, there was an awful lot of investment done in the 2009 to 2014 regulatory period that simply was not necessary. And that needs to be unwound. And if that's unwound, we see real savings on people's electricity bills. We're talking about many hundreds of dollars, not just a hundred dollars. So, um, it can be done and it should be done and it should be done in the short term because the old saying in finance goes, the first write-off's the best one. Um, you know, it, the quicker you fix up a problem with an asset base um, in any company, the better off everyone is uh, because there's no point in continuing this charade of us paying for something that really we shouldn't be paying for. Sounds simple, doesn't it? The federal government forces the energy companies to reduce the value of their networks and prices tumble. But that's the very last thing energy companies would want to do. They would argue that such government intervention makes Australia a risky place to invest, a place where the rules change after you invest. This is called sovereign risk. These guys will be screaming blue murder, sovereign risk. <laughs> you know? Well, they will be screaming sovereign risk, but, uh, you know, it is by beware. They knew that this gold plating had gone on. If they'd done any due diligence at all on the network, they knew that they were buying stuff that was essentially useless and getting paid for it. Um, at some point, the emperor does have no clothes, and that will come. It has to come in electricity because, basically... 
what we're entering in electricity is a death spiral of the network because the network costs are becoming so high that people will have alternatives to go off-grid um, shortly, particularly wealthy people. Uh, we'll have that alternative to go off-grid in the very short term and they will take it. And what that means is that there'll be less people around to fund the network, which means your price keeps going up. So that's the outlook for power prices. If gold plating continues, prices stay high and people who can leave the grid will exit in droves. And the more it goes up, the more economic it becomes for more people to go off grid, which means you've got less people on the grid, which means that prices keep going up and you get this spiralling effect. And we're in that now. We're, we're clearly in that death spiral now for the network. And so this is why... This is something that will happen. It's just a matter of how much pain we have to go through before it does. The price of gas is also driving electricity prices. What's your outlook for gas then? Gas prices are globally uncompetitive in Australia. We're a very large exporter of gas and we are paying amongst the highest prices in the world for our domestic gas. Government caused the problem. They permitted too many export plants at Gladstone, they can fix the problem by a domestic gas reservation scheme and that needs to be enacted in the short term. So that you're saying a domestic the reservation term. policy will, will, would fix it? It would fix it in the short term and the reason why it's not draconian or not unfair on the companies is because the companies themselves in their own EISs stated categorically in their own approval documents for these projects stated very categorically that they would be developing fields and that the, the, the export plants would not affect the domestic market. That's what it says in their EISs. It is their problem, therefore, and then for us to demand as a nation that they supply us with gas is not anything that they didn't say they were going to do in the first place. We are merely enforcing the approval documents that they submitted in in the domestic gas market, what you're going to see is demand destruction. If, if nothing is done about this as a material nature, you will actually see gas disappear, you know, significantly lessen as a fuel that's used in Australia because it's simply not economic to produce power with gas at the moment and it's simply not economic to produce a lot of industrial goods in Australia with gas at the moment. So you will see mass closures of industrial plants. You'll see another wave of deindustrialisation of Australia occurred due to high gas prices. That will destroy demand in Australia for gas and therefore the gas cartel will be unable to make the money that they could out of the domestic market to subsidise their exports. And what that will lead to is you will see closures of the plants at Gladstone. And that is what the end game is either way. Either we introduce the domestic gas reservation policy and you may see some of the plants shut or you will see demand destruction in Australia and you'll see some of the plants shut at Gladstone. So either way, there are consequences um, either way, uh, but they're the same consequences. So it's politically, as I thought, it's a reasonably easy decision because you have the general population who would be in favour of having jobs and uh, in favour of having cheaper electricity uh, versus four gas companies who simply are not 
abiding by their own approval documents. Businesses oppose this idea as meddling in the markets, but now even conservatives such as Jeff Kennett are saying that this is the best way forward. Do you agree with the domestic reservation policy? Well, yes, I think we should be able to allocate a percentage of what we extract from the ground for our own consumption and it should be provided at a competitive rate. What I don't agree with at present is the concept that the government is coming in telling a lot of our companies they've got to break their export contracts. On the other side of politics, former Victorian Labor deputy John Thwaites agrees. Compare that to the United States where they've reserved for the United States uh, the gas that they find onshore and that's led to a huge reduction in their gas prices and and, uh, uh, overall has dampened their electricity prices. So we've chosen to go down a different path. I think... It was a fundamental failure for us to think about the consequences of that. Uh, I can't believe that we allowed our industries here to suffer what they're suffering now, which is a massive increase in their pricing. Well, WA has a domestic reservation policy and uh, prices are lower there. Are you a fan of domestic reservation policy? Yeah, absolutely. Why wouldn't you do that? It's not as though the United States is a Soviet outpost uh, and yet they thought it was sensible to reserve gas for their own industries. These are choices you make. They're political choices you make. And in our country, I just think we've made the wrong choice. Next, Michael will outline the options government has to deliver real reform. Could Australia renegotiate or even break contracts with energy companies to bring down prices? Can we start again with energy assets return to public ownership? Critics of the gas producers say they should be more transparent, more accountable to government. The Turnbull government has suggested that it may intervene in the market to make gas available domestically. Some read this as forcing the producers to divert a portion of their exports, exports already committed. Conservatives like Jeff Kennett find this idea appalling. Uh, do, you think, uh, do, you, do, do you think on the gas there is an issue with what they call the gas market? I mean, is it really a market when you've got, when in the Bass, in the Bass Strait, uh, you've got... SO and BHP, but they've got joint marketing arrangements, so that's effectively one player. In Queensland and so on, you've got Shell and Arrow. Shell now controls Arrow. They were separate before. And then you've got Santos and Origin. So you've effectively got four very large companies that don't disclose the contracts, their last sale price. Hang on, but why should they disclose the contracts, for goodness sake? They're private sector. You sound to me as though you're a bit like our current federal government that thinks it's a good idea to attack our banks. If you in government can't use your influence to bring about change, the last thing you want to do is to destroy public confidence in the institutions that, for most of us, have made available money for our first home and our businesses, etc. In the same way, I'm opposed to that sort of behaviour. Am I also opposed to the concept of encouraging governments to force private sector companies, big or small, to break contracts? No, I'm not talking about contracts. I'm talking about transparency. Well, but hang on. Sorry, sorry. But that has never been part of the rules. You want to change the rules. Well, uh, isn't government in the business of making sure there's not... Government can change rules prospectively if they like. You can't change things retrospectively. Oh, no, 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 no. Well, that's what you said. Well, you're talking about, about current content. No, I'm talking about transparency measures yeah. to allow people... What, to do with current contracts? 
Are you talking about to domestic and commercial operators or are you talking about the four majors that you've referred to making their contracts with their customers more transparent? I'm talking about being able to see who the buyers and sellers in the last price are, like the ASX, like any market. I mean, uh, you, you could argue that this isn't a market because no, you can't... Well, there's, well, there's no visibility. Well, sorry. We've traded in this country for hundreds of years where governments, in the main have allowed the private sector to operate. We've never asked them to disclose their contracts as long as they pay the taxes, etc., etc., that are owed to the community. So you're suggesting a whole new regime. I'm suggesting transparency measures and disclosure okay, measures. Okay, but, but you're suggesting, by, in the name of transparency, a different system. So if you ta- start off with energy, so they've already attacked the banks. Now you're suggesting, and they are, attacking energy companies. So who's going to be next? Is it going to be food companies? Where does it stop? What what do you want us to be, living in a totally socialistic environment? Well, I'm I'm just just a journalist. I'm putting questions. And I'm just a poor superannuant trying to respond. But this sort of talk will only weaken Australia. It won't strengthen it. Well... These gas reserves, for instance, they belong to Australia. That's why we pay royalties. And, they, and, and you don't think those companies don't pay tax on them? Well, no. The, well, I'm happy for you as well, ESO has $27 billion in revenue over the past four I'm years and hasn't paid a zack. I'm very happy for you to argue a case prospectively. I'm not happy for you to argue a case retrospectively. Well, I'm not doing that. I'm just saying transparency measures. No, no, but that, don't give me that. You're just changing the first letter from T to R or R to T. You can change the law. Governments can change the law, regardless of what the risk is. I never will support retrospective changes. Full stop. In the US, they have the pipeline... This banter was fun, but it wasn't getting as far. What about the outlook? Kenneth was more bearish than Bruce Robertson. And what do you think the outlook is for energy prices? It's such a huge... I think it's shocking. Shocking. From a number of points of view, we're rushed into a green energy environment without making sure as we transition from coal, we do so in a way that doesn't put our supplies at risk. So we have rushed headlong into a, a wilderness which will be affected by things beyond our control, such as climate, cold and hot weather. Secondly, I worry very much for those of us who don't and can't put solar on their properties or put a wind tower up, who are going to be be the last men standing, or women, who have to rely on energy, electricity in particular, supplied by the old method. Because there'll be so few of us on the network, the costs will be prohibitive. Now, so what is the answer? The answer is I think, to very quickly change the laws or rules or regulations that ban conventional gas exploration. We've got to rely more and more on gas. We've got to use gas to provide new generators, etc., etc. So what is the answer? In my opinion, the answer is to open up gas exploration as a matter of urgency, uh, conventional method, and uh, understand quite clearly that... The costs are going... I don't think they're going to fall. They might stabilise for a while, but I can't see how, to the average consumer, 
They're not going to continue to rise. On the other side of the political divide, progressives say Australia must resume the transition from coal-fired power to renewable energy, which was suspended when the Abbott government took office in 2013. Alternative energy, like solar and wind, has provided more supply. And more supply means lower prices for homes and industry. And improved battery technology is bringing the price of renewables down quickly. Competition regulator Rod Sims. I've got numbers in my head which are confidential uh, uh, where people have put in solar plants, big industrial players, and it's, it's way less than half the cost of coal. But that's not firmed up. That's just, I'm using it when the sun's shining, I can't use it when it's not. What I found interesting in talking to a lot of industry players, uh, and really there's no substitute for getting out there and talking to industry, and I'm talking about industrial users of electricity here, uh, paper mills, manufacturing plants, food manufacturing, non-food manufacturing, uh, metals, um, uh, steel, cement, a lot of them are thinking about getting their own source of renewable energy, whether it's putting solar panels on the roofs of the factory uh, or I've got a bit of land, I can put some solar panels out there. There's just a lot of people thinking about that. So I suspect there's a lot of momentum behind uh, a lot of people doing a bit of their own self-supply. As more people go off the grid, then what about poor people who can't afford the one-off solar installation? I mean, is there going to be a point where the network operators are going to have to really start getting aggressive, more aggressive in their uh, business practices? What we don't know is which way the whole network debate's going to go. So, so, as I say, it depends very much what happens with batteries. Most people think that people will stay on the grid, so the problem you've given won't arise. If a lot of people do go off the grid, you can't allow the remaining users to cover the full cost of the grid. I think that's just the small p political reality. And I, I would think that anyone who's purchased a grid company, be it transmission or distribution, must have understood that. Um, but as I say, most people think it won't happen. John Thwaites sees opportunity in the death spiral. He told Michael the grid is here to stay. Electric cars will see to that. Two things. What's your outlook for battery technology? How do you? When's it, when's it going to be completely the game over for the grid? And less people on the grid means higher costs for the people that are left on the grid, who will probably be the poor people. So is it all going to... Where are prices going for gas and electricity? And is it all going to end up in the lap of the taxpayer having to fund poor people to keep the electricity companies going? It's a really challenging question. My belief is that it's overstated, this concept that you're going to have massive numbers of people leaving the grid. I mean, it hasn't happened to date. People are wanting to certainly have uh, solar and have batteries, but that doesn't mean that they have to leave the grid. There are still huge benefits in being on the grid. Security, you can start, you can sell your renewable energy back into the grid. So it actually makes sense for people to stay on the grid. So I, in fact, don't believe that we're going to see this massive shift. The other big shift we are going to see, though, is towards electric vehicles. And already you're seeing many European countries say that basically vehicles are going to be all electric in that you know, period, um, 2025, 2030, 2035. Now, not if electricity prices keep rising well, too much, though, John. Well, the, the, and that, that's one reason we, you know, we need to keep um, affordability as a key objective. But to have that level of electric cars, once again, people are going to be on the grid. And, 
if you look at the future, the way I see it is there's going to be more energy efficiency. There's going to be more low-carbon electricity. But there's also going to be electrification. More things that are now done through gas or fossil fuels are going to be using renewable energy. So that will actually mean the grid becomes even more important and there's more reason to stay on the grid. Plug in your electric car, you'll see... uh, people you know potentially putting energy back from their car into the grid for others to use you'll see people uh, with their own uh, renewable energy that they're generating selling that back into the grid you'll see a smart grid that is able to adapt to the different times of use so I, I honestly don't see the future as people sort of going in a sort of a um, isolated pioneering way to their own little separate electricity system I see that we're going to be connected it up on a much smarter grid uh, and using renewable energy to power what we do. Energy advisor Bruce Mountain says the fundamental problem is the structure of the market. The more the networks spend, the more they make. Prices won't come down until this, the biggest factor in rising prices and the biggest part of the customer bill, is reformed. The economic impact of it being dealt with meaningfully uh, would be huge. In terms of uh, improvements, are we going to see the same spending again? Um, at some point in the future, as long as the incentives uh, and the regulatory arrangements are unchanged, yes, can we plausibly spend more than we have? It's very difficult to imagine that's possible. The network has been, at least in respect of substation capacity, so remarkably overbuilt and the regulatory asset base so so extraordinarily high. Um, it's very difficult to imagine that occurring. It's useful to bear in mind that um, over the last decade, in all the networks except Queensland where there's been LNG development, there's been a trend rate of decline in both average and peak demand in almost all of the networks. So they're not getting bigger, they're getting smaller. Despite the decline of demand, the prices have continued to go up. up. And from what you're saying, you don't see any relief then. You think they'll continue to rise? I think they will rise not because spending will increase. I think spending uh, will stagnate and in some cases decrease as it long should have. Um, But I think network charges will continue to rise because I expect um, the demands on the shared network to decline as more and more of our electricity is produced locally. It's much cheaper now to produce electricity at the point of use than it is to buy it from the shared network. Talking Uh, about solar? Yeah, yeah, solar and increasingly the combination of batteries and having solar, which improves the economics of installation of solar. You have an incentive to put more solar in if you can use it locally and and, uh, decrease your purchases from the grids. Tristan Edis. What about gas? I think gas prices are um, going to stay high, um, seems to be the answer, although I'm, I'm always nervous about saying that generating electricity from gas is going to be an expensive proposition. You know, you're roughly looking at about $100 a megawatt hour. And so really our only relief from from that is to roll out uh, wind and solar with some form of um, energy storage um, or dispatchable energy. On the network side of things, are we going to see power prices go down? I think at least we won't see them go up substantially. 
at least for the next regulatory period because the memories are so clear in our mind about what happened, the horrible things that happened back in 2007. After speaking to a lot of people, Michael says governments must end the age of gold plating. Whether there is a political will to do this remains to be seen. So the essential conflict that the networks make money by building as much stuff, useless stuff, in, in often as possible, because the more they spend, the more they get paid, the bigger their bonuses, the bigger the dividend to government or uh, profit for the, uh, the private operator. That essential conflict has to go. Whatever they can fool the regulator into letting them build, you know, if, if I build a factory and produce too many falcons, and everyone, no one wants, you know, gas guzzling falcons anymore. Um, I don't get a right to then say, well, sorry, I've built this factory and spent all this money on um, tooling up for a falcon. No one wants them anymore, but I don't care. I want to be able to recover revenue from, um, from householders for the falcons I would have made. That's not the way we run it. Um, that's not the way that, that works. And the same should be the case with electricity networks. I mean, this is the tragedy, right? You've got a bunch of people running around saying solar PV is the rich robbing from the poor. And you sit there and you go, well, that's bullshit. And we have to separate out networks, which are a regulated monopoly, from generation and retail. If we deal with the generation, the wholesale market, I reckon that's gone as high as it possibly can go. And I reckon it's going to start going down. You know, they're at astronomical levels. You know, we're, we're paying levels for our electricity that, you know, more than Europe. The Victorian government and also the federal government are on to some of the problems we've had with pricing distortions and, and, and confusing pricing practices. And, and hopefully that'll reform that and we'll start to see the retail component of our bills go down. But I think they could easily take their eye off the ball again with that because we, we haven't really seen, um, I think, an acceptance of right um, answer to that, which is you know basically doing better billing disclosure and better structure around pricing. Um, but those two components should go down, I think. And so at the end of this journey, after five years of work, Michael's investigation shows the energy crisis we face in Australia was born of poor policy and complacency. It was the failure of an experiment in free markets that had little to do with the real cost of powering our homes and industry. Michael says there are solutions. But governments must take urgent action or prices will continue to rise. Michael West. If we are to take control of rising energy costs, government needs to address three main factors. One, gold plating of the networks. Two, excessive retail charges. And three, soaring gas prices. First, gold plating of the networks. There must be write-downs to the value of the networks. Energy prices will fall as the value of Australia's network assets falls into line with other countries. Second, excessive retail charges. Bills should be easy to understand and electricity offers easy for customers to compare. The Thwaites Review has laid down a good blueprint for reform. Its recommendations should be adopted to bring greater transparency for customers. Third, soaring gas prices. Western Australia earmarks 15% of its gas production for the local market. Gas prices there are much lower. There is no reason why the East Coast can't embrace a domestic gas reservation policy just like WA. For these three things to happen, there needs to be decisive political action. A single national regulator should be established and power wrested from the states. 
And until this happens, the government's latest energy policy, the NEG, will pass into history, as did the many policies which came before it. Unless there is bold action on energy, the dream of prosperity driven by our nation's vast natural resources will remain just that, a dream. Investigation and interviews by Michael West. Voiced by journalist Nikki Markovic. Executive producer Adam Shand. The Energy Truth is a Podcast One production.